Okay. A lot more people here uh, after announcements than before. So this is our last chapter uh, in James, and then Lauren is going to uh, do a little theology of James. So if you've been wondering, uh, yes, Lauren, I think, is, is ready to, to, yeah, for me to hand the baton over at least for a weekend. Um, so looking forward to that. So brief recap, because uh, it's helpful to hear these things again. Uh, James 1, I think James is calling us as he's writing this wisdom book uh, to a, a godly kind of perspective. See the world, hold the values, care about the things God cares about, uh, not the things that the world cares about. Uh, there's this language throughout about not being double-minded, so a kind of singular devotion, maybe singular vision. Uh, and along with this is a long-term perspective. Don't just think in the now, think bigger than that. And he ends with that uh, beautiful line, pure and faultless religion is this, to look after the orphans and widows and their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Uh, I, love, I love that line in James. Uh, I just taught on James 1 in, uh, in my freshman class. And I love his vision there of, of pure Christianity to look after the orphans and widows, uh, they are representing the most vulnerable. And it seems to make a lot of sense why this is Christianity in its pure form. Because this is where we were. We were vulnerable, and we couldn't help ourselves, and we needed rescue and redemption. That's what God did for us. So our religion practiced purely is to do the same for others. It's just a, a fantastic line there in James. Uh, something else in James 1. James 1, I'm going to be a little slower on, then we'll, we'll pick up speed. Uh, he, he talks about Scripture as the law of freedom. Uh, and that's such a healthy way to think about Scripture, uh, that sometimes we look at this book as that which constrains what we want to do, but for James, it's the law of liberty or the law of freedom, that not what keeps us from doing what we want to do, but that which frees us to become who we were meant to be. What a, what a paradigm shift that is when we approach Scripture. Here is freedom to be who you were created to be. Uh, James 2 um, there's this uh, language about not showing partiality uh, to the rich and against the poor. So we're adopting God's vision. Remember that in, in chapter 1. How does God think about the poor? Well, we know how he thinks about the poor. Look how Jesus interacted with them. How should we? Clearly uh, the same way. Follows that up. Faith without works is dead. Uh, we are to practice these things. Uh, if our faith isn't living, it's dead. Uh, and we distinguished... Uh, a little bit here, Lauren might get into it more, that uh, maybe James is, is doing something different than Paul. Perhaps Paul is saying, uh, you need works of the law, you need to become a Jew. And, and uh, what James is talking about is not how do you get saved, but uh, you need to have good deeds that flow from your faith. Chapter 3, we looked at the power of speech. Uh, it can do great good, but James' focus seems to be on the uh, negative effects speech can have. And how speech, what we do with our mouths, often flows from the heart. Uh, so... It's kind of a heart check. It's really hard to control your tongue. Uh, the better you are at that, maybe that's an indication of your growing maturity. Uh, he follows that up with that beautiful line about true wisdom. I'll read that even though I just lost my spot. At the end of James 3. The wisdom um, from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. I love how he sums it up there. You want to be wise? Don't get a bunch of book knowledge, although they can add to this. But true wisdom is seen in, in particular kinds of virtues. Purity, peace, gentleness, willingness to yield, mercy. Um, just a, a beautiful illustration there. And then James 4, he calls us to that singleness of devotion. 
And it's kind of a chapter about submission, a submission to God. Uh, and then following that up, a submission to the law. Uh, you don't get to judge which laws you do and don't keep, but your attitude is one of uh, willingness to submit to God's law in His way and finally to His will. You don't make all these plans as though you're the Lord of your own life, but you're always um, operating uh, with this sense of God's will be done. And the verse, or chapter 4 ends with this hinge that maybe prepares us for chapter 5. So chapter 4, verse 17 Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. Kind of goes with what is said before about uh, this submission to God's will, that your will be done. Uh, But it also prepares us for what happens in chapter 5. Those who know the good they ought to do, paying their workers and who refuse to do it. All right, so here we are now, chapter 5 and verse 1. This is not feel-good stuff for the first six verses. Um, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted, and your cloths and your clothes are moth-eaten. This is in the perfect uh, tense, which is like he's saying it's already happened. Your riches have rotted. So... In one way, no, they haven't. But another, James is saying, this is like a foregone conclusion. This is why you weep and wail, because uh, you can count on God's response. As he's about to get to, your riches have rotted, your clothes are moth-eaten. Clothes can be symbols of wealth and status in the first century. Uh, So much more so uh, even than now, though they still are. But uh, so if you remember back in chapter 1, Uh, The rich, or in chapter 2, you know, you show partiality of people with the right things. Uh, Here, those things that some people look at and think, I want that, they can also be maybe the opposite. Uh, Verse 3, your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. I should have asked Lauren to do James 5, and... uh, Instead of me, this is, this is tough. Your gold and silver have rusted. Do gold and silver rust? No. Maybe uh, part of his point here is those things that you're putting your security in, you think, oh, we have this, it won't rust. You can't even put your security in that. You should be insecure in your security when your security is in those kinds of things. Right? Someone turn the air on. Um, Verse 3b, the second half there, you have laid up treasure for the last days. Oh, man, this is hard language. It's, James is getting brutal here. Do you think you're storing up treasure for security, for comfort, or whatever it is? But he's about to tell them what treasure they're ironically laying in store for themselves. Listen. You hear it? The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Uh, James is bringing in, uh, this, is, this is not a new Christian kind of ethic. This is, this is very much in the law. Uh, for instance, Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15. You don't have to flip there if you trust me. Um, Don't take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, 
whether that worker is an, an Israelite or is a foreigner resident, residing in one of your towns, pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may, listen to the language that's similar here, they may cry out to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. First, you know, murder in the Bible, Cain and Abel. Abel's blood cries out to the Lord. Uh, the Israelites in Egypt, they cry out to the Lord in their oppression, and the Lord hears and he responds. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts, that's, yours might say uh, sabbat or something like that. That is not Sabbath like rest, that is host, that's army. This is the Lord of heaven's armies knows what you've done and he's coming. This is not feel good stuff, this is you're in danger. Remember that perfect tense, this is happening. He's on his way, you better get your stuff in order. So when I've used this verse to, to, to justify uh, paying the landscaper well, that's <laughs> yeah, you better be paying him well, yeah. Um, some of you, if you've ever been to, um, to Lipscomb, to the Ezel building, you may have seen uh, Miss Anna, who cleans. Um, maybe none of you know her. Miss, Miss Anna's from, uh, Miss Anna, is from Mexico, and I was talking to her one day, just wonderful lady, and she was telling me about, you know, her, her coming over to the States, and I think she started out in L.A., and her first job uh, was sewing buttons and buttonholes uh, for some company. And she was getting paid, or she had, you know, what they told her is something like, you get three cents a button and seven cents a buttonhole. Something just pathetic. So she works for weeks sewing buttons and buttonholes. And she goes to get paid. She's made like a few hundred dollars. You can imagine how long that would take. And her boss just says, nope, and he doesn't pay her. I mean, this is the kind of stuff where the Lord of hosts is going to come. And he's going to bring the hammer down, and it's not going to be pretty. Remember James 2, I think it's uh, 13. Judgment without mercy will be to those who don't show mercy. If you're adopting this kind of godly perspective, and you know God cares about the poor, you don't want to be on the wrong side of that which is not the same as saying you've got to, to adopt a certain political uh, idea um, or that the poor are always victims. Don't, don't overreach here, but, but there is a place where you don't want to be the oppressor if you know who God is and know what he cares about. Verse uh, 6, You have condemned and murdered the righteous one, and he does not oppose you. You have uh, condemned. If you remember chapter 2, verse 6, when he, and James is saying, why do you care about the rich so much? Aren't they the ones who take you to court? This is that language there. As, as, as um, James is speaking here to the rich oppressors, what they can do is they can make the court system work to their advantage. To get heard by a judge, you often have to bribe. And if you are bribing the judge, who do you think the judge is going to side with? Think you bribe the judge to get a fair hearing? Clearly not. The wealthy bribe the judge in court, and then they get um, the judgment on their side. You have condemned and murdered the righteous ones, or maybe the better language here is the innocent ones. I don't think this is Christological. I don't think James just jumps over to you condemned and killed Jesus. He seems to be in this context saying, 
you have taken advantage of the innocent. And then the end of verse 6 can go one of two ways. It can say, you have condemned the innocent and he or she doesn't resist you. It's just showing that, that gap. You're condemning and this person isn't even resisting. I mean, how sick are you? Or the other option for reading this is, you have condemned the innocent. Does God, does he not oppose you? The language here of uh, oppose is the same back in chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud. So uh, both fit the context. Either look at what you're doing to this person who's not resisting you, or look at what you're doing. Don't you know that God resists this kind of thing? Um, So here's some... Contemporary Jewish, this is from Sirach. Uh, With this language of condemning and murdering, they might not be physically murdering, but when they are depriving them, it's like murder. The bread of the needy is the life of the poor. Whoever deprives them of it is a man of blood. To take away a neighbor's living is to murder him. To deprive an employee of his wages is to shed blood. I'm guessing... um, we aren't guilty of this, I hope not, in this room, deliberately. But this does raise these kind of questions of, of how, how do we live in a system that we know is, is, um, is employing people in other countries at, you know, terrible wages and child labor. And, you know, what do we do when, how do we shop? How do we buy? How do we, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answers to this. This is where I'm with C.S. Lewis who says, you know, we who are the teachers and clergy, we kind of, People think this way, and then we need those who are economists uh, and you know uh, people who understand law to to work to help us think about what to do as Christians. I'll show you some problems, uh, what God thinks about, but I can't come up with a solution. This is where we need those who are trained in that area to help us think through these kinds of solutions. Uh, Lewis has this great line: uh, "You don't want clergy to do that any more than you want them uh, to come up with." Um, uh, what do you say, to write a play if you're looking for Christian art. Uh, we're not capable of that. We're not capable of, of coming up with education programs uh, and perfect laws and economics. But we need people who are trained to that to do it Christianly. Verse 7. Yeah. Uh, did you skip verse 5? Verse 5. Uh, you have lived, yes I did, you have lived on the earth in luxury and pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You just wanted more pain, huh? Uh, I, was, I was a little convicted and I didn't feel like I could let that go. Yeah. Interesting, you fatten your hearts. Uh, the heart seems to be, uh, in James, it's kind of like you're distorting who you are. But, but as he's talking about luxury and pleasure, you've got to wonder, okay, in the ancient world, there was this greater gap between the haves and have-nots. Uh, but... From a global perspective, do we look like them? You know, it seems to be uh, God always allowed people to be wealthy. Mm-hmm. And, but the wealthy, with that wealth does come the responsibilities. And I think that here, if you've got the ability to make money, great. You can employ people like Randall. Mm-hmm. They need jobs. But when they work for you, treat them fairly and pay them. Yeah. Don't take advantage of them. Nothing wrong with making money. It's just, yeah. It's, 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 you like to fatten your heart so that you're not 
sensitive. Mm -hmm. Don't want to, that's the issue. Yeah, um, I like uh, John Mark Hicks. I remember this way back when I had him for systematic. He said something like, uh, we might think of wealth as neutral or like um, a test that's going to reveal our hearts. And so, yeah, it's, you've got people who make money, who host, who do great things for the church. I think, uh, so James is not going against that, but it is, it's revealing your heart, like you're saying. And, and if you are kind of positioning yourself, as James says, to see the world and care about the things God cares about, then that's going to take you uh, on this path with wealth. And if you are caring about the stuff he talks about in James 1, like clothes and status, then you're going to go a different. And, and I think our struggle is James is wanting us to not try to keep our feet on both paths. At least that's my struggle. Uh, he wants us to be singular so that we're heading and thinking in these, these ways. Yeah, but that's, that's a helpful. Um, so wisdom literature, uh, if I haven't already said this, it needs some nuance. James is giving us kind of general advice, typical advice, and then we listen to the rest of Scripture to help us nuance it. So, um, yes, that's, that's helpful. If you, you can overhear this to think everyone who's rich must be bad and everyone who's poor must be good, that's, that's not the, the point here. These things reveal our hearts, and um, just like our mouths reveal our hearts, so do our uh, wallets. And I, I've, I've often struggled with how what must have been going on in Jerusalem at this time. You know, this is what the prophets wail about. Yeah. They, 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 that's all what the prophets are talking about. You treat the poor detestably. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I don't, I don't really think I have grasped at all what's going on there. Yeah, it's, um, I, I'm not sure exactly either. It's, it was, we don't live in a perfect society, but it's a lot less corrupt, I think, then. But I have that, I have that um, feeling every time I'm at a stoplight and I see one of those guys with a paper mm -hmm. coming at me. Same guys every day, da, da, da. I mean, what is my ethic? What, what do I do about that? That's yeah. I know it's tough, and I mean, my, I don't, I don't know, short, it, but I think, I think it's something more than just giving handouts. There is a kind of relational aspect to this um, that's expected. I mean, there's a place for handouts and helping, but there's, sometimes all handouts do is just, perpetuate. yeah, perpetuate uh, a broken problem, broken system, and, but it also allows us to do something, keep it at arm's length, and not not kind of mess with our lives too much. And so the communal aspect here of James would be something that would maybe benefit and cost both parties more. Randall, to go along with what you're saying, isn't there like a, a stereotype in the Jewish culture? Like um, if you were blind or remain from birth, it's because God did this to you or your family was sinful. So isn't there some correlation between that and if you're poor it's because you aren't righteous or people who got themselves self-righteous that their wealth came from God because of their righteousness or yeah you've they, got it, they kind of create the stipulation of yeah so you've got some thinking that and others not I mean so much of the Old Testament is you take care of the poor but then you've got this other stream that's saying you know if God blesses the righteous and you know curses the wicked then clearly those who are well off are the blessed i.e. the righteous and so it's there is this tension that makes it hard to know yeah Gentiles. 
So if they cheat a Gentile, that's not a problem. They can <laughs> brag about how I cheated a Gentile. Yeah. It's a little different than the way we are. We don't have that distinction between those of us who are in the group and those who are out of the group. Mm -hmm. So that, that could be some of this. Yeah. Because it does talk about whether it's a Jew or a foreigner. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very true. Um, I think that would be missing the point when Jews do that, but I think that happens. That's Jesus' Good Samaritan thing. Who's my neighbor? That's his question. Well, I got to help my folks? And Jesus just you know, throws that open and says, no, if you got this, you would realize it extends beyond that. Okay. Oh, man. Time. Okay, seven. Let's, let's get to something a little less um, yeah, tough. Uh, Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. So uh, the first six verses are discussing the uh, typical oppression. Uh, what we get in verses 7 through 11 seems to be, how do you respond? Okay, things are wrong. People are acting in ways that are unjust. What is your response to that? Uh, he opens it up by saying, be patient. And so we might hear that as something like, okay, did we just passively sit by and let this happen? But if we keep reading, we realize that that doesn't seem to be the expectation. This isn't a passive patience, but a kind of active and honest uh, critical patience. So we see, I'll read all of 8 through 11, and then I'll explain what I mean. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Beloved, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. See, the judge is standing at the doors. As an example of suffering and patience, beloved, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Indeed, we call blessed those who showed endurance. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So if the prophets, as, as Randall was already talking about, if the prophets are an example about patience and injustice, they are not kind of quiet, silent victims, but they are speaking honestly about who God is and about what he cares about, and they seem to be working uh, toward restoration. But they're typically, uh, they don't seem to have any sense of violence or vengeance that goes with it, which seems to fit James's ethic. Okay, what you do in this is not respond with violence, uh, although you might respond like the prophets with honesty uh, and critique uh, as you wait patiently for God to bring justice. He's near. It says this kind of twice. Verse 8, the Lord is near. Or the end of verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. So um, you live with hope, recognizing the brokenness, and you speak as though um, you know truth. So you're not silent amidst this. Um, we'll keep going because of time. Verse 12, Above all, my beloved, don't swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, uh, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Maybe if verse 12 goes with what precedes it, he's saying, you know, don't swear oaths to try to uh, work yourself out of this oppression. Maybe um, that's what one person said. I don't know if I see that as much. It's really hard to know why James moves here, though. Um, nor does this need to be read as some sort of blanket prohibition. Never can you swear an oath, you know, in court or something like that. Uh, that maybe because God swears oaths, Paul swears oaths. So we nuance wisdom literature with what we know elsewhere. Uh, so maybe he's getting at um, certain ancient practices where uh, you could swear oaths by lesser things as a way of getting out of the oath. It was like a loophole kind of system. Uh, so he's calling them to a, an integrity. Uh, have integrity. Let your yes be yes, your no, no. Uh, the kind of old school gentleman's handshake. Uh, it's your word um, can be counted on. 
Verse 13, are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Uh, oil could represent medicinal um, uh, c- component here, or it might be something like the presence of the Lord. It's really not quite clear how it's related to this prayer of healing. Uh, the Gospels and Acts show healing that often isn't accompanied by oil, so I don't it's, it's just a, an interesting thing. Um, but this wasn't uncommon in Jewish, uh, first century Jewish world to have oil and prayer as part of healing. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. So the prayer of faith will save the sick. Um, we've got this tension here. Uh, you're supposed to hold faith that God's going to act. And yet, in the previous chapter, it's this um, trusting God's will be done. God's will is going to be done. You're going to suffer. Don't be surprised by trials. Okay, so there might be suffering. There might be trials. We shouldn't be surprised by this. We submit to God's will, and yet we expect him to bring restoration in this context. It's, it's a hard balance uh, to know how do we do this? How do we pray with expectation and submission at the same time? So, you know, this isn't we command God but we, we live with faith that he will respond. I don't have this one figured out. Um, I think I probably err on the side of lacking expectation. You know, okay, God, please fix this, but I don't expect you to, so I'll add a your will be done at the end of it to give you a way out. Um, yeah, I mean, you know what, I'm, I'm, this is hard because you don't want to, but at the same time, because this can be taken so wrongly where uh, when people aren't healed, then they get this guilt, right? Maybe God doesn't listen to me. Or maybe, as he says here, maybe it's because I've got some sort of secret sin that I'm not aware of. Or maybe I did something wrong when I was 17 and now I'm being punished. It, maybe if I had just had more faith, so-and-so wouldn't have gotten sick. That, that doesn't seem to be the idea here, but I don't know the balance. Um, but we, we trust who this God is. We trust he cares. We trust he's got the power to restore. We ask him for that. Uh, and at the same time, we submit uh, if he doesn't respond or if that response is delayed, like Elijah in a little bit, who takes three and a half years um, in between his prayers being answered. One thing that hasn't been mentioned is that, again, looking at this in the context of the time it occurred, elders in that church from this time could have had spiritual gifts to actually Mm-hmm. And we know that they didn't keep people from dying forever. Mm-hmm. So these healings at that particular time serve as a, a testimony to continue the church's growth and sustain the church in that time. Uh, because, you know, again, we have, we have people now that are, are certainly uh, comforted by elders gathering around them, placing hands on them, anointing them with oil. And at the same time, it's like you said, I personally haven't witnessed a miraculous healing mm-hmm. in my lifetime doing that. Uh, I think they did in that time. Do I, but do I uh, uh, in any way minimize the need and, and, and desire to continue doing that? No, I, I want to I mm-hmm. uh, humbly submit ourselves to God and pray for that healing for that person. So it, it, it's when you read this, I think you got to look back at what was occurring mm-hmm. at that time as well as what, how, how can it affect us today? Yeah, and I wish maybe there was more. I mean, it does seem as though there was so much more of that happening then than happens now. And, but there's no distinction really made between 
why that might not happen so much. So is it a change in us or a change in the era? Yeah? It may hinge uh, on what the meaning of miraculous is. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah, Eric. Really, uh, I'm about a third of the way through it. Highly recommend that because what I used to kind of consider maybe a natural sort of thing, uh, say how medicine works and mm-hmm. all the, uh, you know, we or take it for granted. Throw that back into this time. Stuff that's done today is miracles. So anyway, he does a good job in that book yeah. of kind of giving giving that a new lens. And so. Hilton, to your point, I, 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 I relate to what your observation is, but maybe it's how we begin to think of what a miracle really is. Yeah. Yeah, we might expand that. We, uh, the, um, the only, you know, kind of experience of this that, that I've had is with, um, I had, you know, this charismatic grandmother. She was, she was fantastic. We called her Mamu, which was a great name. Um, and she, she was one of the most um, kind of, I, I, she seemed to have this gift of faith. And she had cancer three or four times. Um, and she had these kind of healing things. Uh, and I remember one time, well, two instances that were just kind of burned into my memory. Uh, one, she got the uh, diagnosis she had cancer again. And so I call her up and, and she's just like, it's okay. I know I'm going to be all right. It, w- it was just this weirdest experience because her faith was so strong. It kind of, I left that conversation thinking, she is. And lo and behold, she was. And then uh, several years later, she got a cancer diagnosis again. And I called her and I was talking to her and she said, this is it. And I was like, okay, this is, I mean, it was, she was in touch with, I don't know. I, I don't know how to explain Mamu's faith, but it was such a powerful experience of, of faith that seemed to lead to healing that not only led to healing, but, but led to my belief in that upcoming healing. It was, it was a pretty powerful uh, moment that was made that much more powerful when uh, at the end she called it, kind of at the same point. Um, yeah. Hey, Josh. Yeah. Could this, this could be very much a yes or no Okay. Answer. Yeah, um, I someone uh, or one of the commentators said uh, that the language here seems to be suggesting physical sickness with the elders coming and praying over them as though they're kind of laying, uh, maybe almost bedridden or something. Possibly, uh, th- there is this interesting link there though with. Uh, the, the language at the end of, um, of verse 15 is literally, if anyone or if he has committed sin, it will be forgiven. As though sometimes, I mean, this, you get the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11 with the Lord's Supper thing. Some of you are sick because of, your, of what you're doing. So the New Testament doesn't wholly leave behind the sense of our sins can experience some physical punishment for it. Um, it's just, as he says with this if there, it's not... Um, it's not as though you always know that sin and sickness are correlated. But it's, it seems weird to us because we want to avoid any notion of that, but neither James nor Paul do. It's just 
not always the case that every sin leads to sickness or I would be up here in a lot worse health. <laughs> Josh, well, one more thing. Is, is that there's another, another verse here where it talks about praying for one another. Yeah. And I, I, you know, to piggyback on what Hilton was saying, I'm not so sure that there's anything special about the elders getting together to pray. But I do know that there, it's, there's something special about us all praying. Mm-hmm. I, I remember um, in our life group, we used to get together at the beginning of every school year and pray for our children and we would bring each one of them individually in. And you can't, you can talk to our kids. That had an effect on me to know that adults <coughs> were praying for them. Yeah. And, and I think that's a serious thing. Yeah. I would imagine maybe this is a balance between what was said about what we think miraculous. Some of the things that we call coincidence might be more miraculous. Um, my wife, not to get too personal, but she ovulates maybe once or twice a year. Because of that, we never know when it's coming. We didn't know if we'd have kids. We've had three. Actually, she had a miscarriage, so four times uh, she's gotten pregnant with this kind of, you know, we're not honeymooners who, you know, you know the, the, odds, the odds are not with us if it's, you know, two days a year. Uh, and yet, you know, this, this happened. In fact, the day uh, the day I was going in to get tested to see if it was me or her, she took a pregnancy test because that was what you know we were supposed to do, and there it was, you know, the <laughs> double line. I was like, so coincidence, possibly miracle, uh, maybe. I don't. I think Kyle Creamer stepped out of here. I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but you know his his little boy is sick, and um, they were maybe needing to do um, some pretty serious bone marrow kind of transplant and stuff, and it just so happened. Uh, that accidentally Ashley, his wife, had gotten pregnant and they were able to use the cord blood uh, to, to help um, limit the extents of the procedure. I mean, they didn't plan that and yet these kinds of things um, happen and we can call them coincidence or maybe we can say uh, the Lord who we know is merciful, who hears prayers and answers, is at work. Um, all right, 60 seconds, do this quick. Um, pray for one another. Oh, confess. Confession, yes. We need to practice confession. We need to practice it in small groups, though. Um, unless it's a super public thing that needs to be done uh, in a public way, uh, often what we need is safe people we can confess honestly to. I don't know if any of you have practiced this, but when you confess to someone uh, who you know cares about you, it relieves that burden, and that person can look at you and tell you you're forgiven, and it is powerful. Uh, this is how like Christ works uh, through those around us. So, Confess, yes, but do so with some discretion. You don't just do it to strangers. You don't. Uh, one of the great examples was if you've been kind of harboring some secret, you know, bad thoughts about someone, you might not need to confess it to them because that might not actually be practicing love of neighbor to say, hey, I haven't been liking you in my mind lately. Maybe. <laughs> so, so be wise about this. Um, so you've got Elijah. <laughs> Yeah, line up, because I've got some things to say to you guys. Uh, So, 1920, keep people from wondering from the truth. This is our job. We don't like to get in others' business, but a small group, those people we love, it's okay to say, I'm a little worried about you. It's not your business if you're not that close to somebody else, but if you are close, you do love them, uh, it helps to speak truth. This is going back to James, how this sin has this progression that leads to death. Uh, So you work on this early. You don't wait till they are moving out. because that's good. All right. 
Thank you again for listening to me. Uh, see you all. Looking forward to Lauren speaking.